Okay, this episode is dedicated to Josie. In the King George. I'm really tired, but I can't stay in my bunk. The rest of the crew are already up on deck eating breakfast in the soft morning sun. The storm's just a memory. They talk excitedly about last night, enjoying that near-death experience. Now on the safe side of it. Josie's a bit embarrassed, feeling, I suppose, like she's let us down. I feel really sorry for Josie. She couldn't swim. It was scary enough for me and the crew with the thought of having to abandon ship, swim past the rocks, body surf past the crocs and onto the beach. We moored her into the estuary of King George, cutting ripples across a mirror that makes symmetry with the bushes and trees that grow where the red cliffs have collapsed into the gorge. A gentle breeze carrying the earthly scent of vegetation off the land. I stare up at the high cliff walls, like ochre, orange, red. It's like a scene out of Jason and the Argonauts. A small flat-bottom motorboat is anchored up ahead. A sun-blackened guy looks up from baiting his fishing rods. He waves us over. Fucking oath! We surfed in late last night. Lost a tinny off the back. But I wasn't going back for it. <laughs> Fuck! A rumbling noise. <clears throat> There's only ours in this one tinny in the entire gorge. Probably now it's like Piccadilly Circus. Um, a rumbling noise precedes the mighty King George Falls. Two thundering white curtains of fresh water that drop over the cliff and churn up the salt water a few hundred feet below. Dave's keen to get amongst it. Lowers the dinghy over the fenders. The water's tea brown from the earth and vegetation dragged into its flow as it makes its way from the hinterland, linking up the billabongs that form part of the river in the rainy season. The air mixes with the tea and forms a layer of foam that whips up off Dave's oars as he rows toward the base of the falls. The falls rumble and groan, warning us of its power and blow spray in our faces. Any closer and we will, any closer and we will risk sinking the boat. Not a great idea in this territory where every log, branch, shadow was a potential croc. It wasn't very comforting, but in truth, with the dinghy only six inches above the water, if a croc wanted a piece of us, he could just lean in and pick us off. Josie stayed on board, still a little shaken. She didn't want to come climbing the waterfall, but she wanted to be useful, so she offered to fix the sunshade on the cockpit. The climb up toward the top of this falls is steep and slippery. I look back down into the estuary wondering if any salties were waiting patiently for a wrong footing. Before, I, before I'd travelled, the countryside to me was a green field, dry stone walls, well-worn paths, a few trees, and if you're lucky, a stream that Grandad could remember having fish in it. Here in the Kimberleys, 
one of the last unspoilt places on earth where flora and fauna thrive. It's as if man didn't exist. A rock rolls and scrapes and the arse of a rock wallaby in the blink of an eye gone. Stinging green ants weave their leaf homes above us and drop down into our shirts if you bang into the tree. The razor-sharp wader-wild thorns entangle in our clothes. A brown snake slides across the leaf litter. We didn't know back then. We're just sort of following Dave's lead, thinking he was an all-knowing Australian. You know, he knew everything about everything, but he was from Western Sydney in Blacktown. He wasn't a bushman. And uh, he's wandering around barefoot up this climb. <clears throat> I guess he knew, though, even though he didn't know that territory, he knew that sna snakes generally aren't coming at you. They're heading away from you. It's just when you stand on them or try and grab them that you're more likely to get bitten. Australia has 13 of the world's most deadly snakes, most of which are small and unassuming. Get bitten out here, and it's a long walk to the hospital for the antivenom. The indigenous people used to just drop when they got bitten. Literally, the the um, on most snakes in Australia, the venom's travelling through your lymphatic system. So you put a compression bandage on to slow down the lymphatic and literally stop. Don't move, because you start moving around you're pumping that lymphatic around your body and if you keep doing that you're gonna die and the indigenous people used to just go shit up in bit and just drop and then the tribe would tend to them in that spot there was a dude near us and um, he got bit he grabbed a snake in um, he had welders gloves and there was a hole in the gloves and he was trying to, I think he was trying to save it from the floodwaters, ironically. And um, he kept moving around. Um, he got bit. He went home. He was panicking because he was trapped by floodwaters. And he just kept moving around and um, had a coffee, checked the internet. And he died. So uh, lesson be learned there if um, you want a chance of surviving. I think with a brown snake you get about 10 hours if you um, do a, a compression bandage. I'm running at a lower tone on this podcast too because um, of the subject, but um, you'll understand surely. The sun is at its meanest when we reach the top of... Sorry, the sun is at its meanest when we reach the top of of the waterfall. It's bearing down on us and making a mockery of our white skin. Way down in the gorge we can just make out Josie, busy with the sun shed. I call out but my voice is lost amongst the falls. We clamber around on the edge for a while, scaring ourselves. And well back from the drag of the falls, wallow in the freshwater. There's generally not crocs in the freshwater. There's freshwater crocs in there. Calling the Johnson crocodile, but not estuarine saltwater crocs. As a rule, 
Occasionally they get washed in. Um, I've swum in a few places actually where, and a lot of Australians have up north, they go to a popular swimming hole and then a week later they say, oh yeah, there was a six metre croc in there or something like that. Dave takes out his razor. He's kind of got this habit with getting crazy locations for shaving. Similar to the Australian travellers who got arrested on their mission to be photographed naked at the famous landmarks around Europe. <laughs> Just imagine it. Back down on the bank of the estuary, when we finally climb back down, I'm so preoccupied keeping an eye for crocodiles, I walk straight into a wasp nest that's hanging in a tree. They're just anyway. They get on with pumping their poison into my face. I can't jump in the water for the risk of crocs. The ground's uneven and rocky, so I can't run very quickly either. Later that day, Bryce is cracking up as he's retelling this tale to Josie with great enjoyment. Should have seen him, Josie, digging in hand. I thought he'd had too much sun till I saw all these little dots. <laughs> and it's pretty true about Australia too, because um, it's normally when you're looking out for the big stuff that you get done by something small, like um, hairy caterpillars or bull ants when you're watching out for the snake. Josie had a real sweat on after sewing the awning. I could tell she wished she could have made the climb. At dinner time, Josie hands out our bowls filled to the brim with kangaroo stew. Dave gives her the double look. Dave was understandably thrifty with food. I think I didn't understand it then, but he didn't have a massive freezer. He had a very small freezer and within he only had like a couple of weeks worth of meat and after that it's just relying on fish but being young and hungry I was on Josie's side <laughs> I'm sure Bri was too um, the food was great but afterwards we're regretting it as the kangaroo meat's really rich and gamey and it's repeating heavily on us. The sun's rays had left the gorge a few hours ago. I throw the bucket back into the water for just one more scoop of that cooling liquid and sit on deck watching the rocks change colour in the diffused light. Bryce sat next to Josie in the cockpit reading a book when suddenly she falls against him and drops to the ground. Bryce just managed to break a fall confused as to what's happening. Gus hears the noise and thinking her mate's having an asthma attack, rushes out with Josie's inhaler. We tried the inhaler, but she's not moving. Her eyes are dilated and they're not, we're shining a torch in her eyes, that's not moving, there's no pulse we can feel. I just start giving her mouth to mouth and Bryce straight on working her heart. Dave's on the radio to the flying doctor who's relaying information. Keep going, don't give up, don't give up, don't give up. And we're just going, going and going. It's blowing and blowing. The guy said, the flying, Dave's trying to get the flying doctor out, but the flying doctor's saying, 
See if you can get a response. Keep giving CPR. If you get a response, we'll fly out. Otherwise, we won't. But don't give up. Fuck. 20 minutes past. I'm still giving mouth to mouth. Bryce trying to pump my oxygen around the body. Trying to get a blood going. What I thought was slight movement breaths that keep me going was just my air passing back out of Joseph's body. This is a magica. This is a flying doctor. Come in a magica. Any response? What's the situation? Situation is, Dave said, we need a helicopter. If there's no response, we can't come out, mate. I'm really sorry, but we have other priorities for the helicopter. Bryce shines the torch beam back into Josie's eyes. Her pupils aren't moving. I stop mouth to mouth and look down at Josie. She's gone. We all know it. Any chance of life has passed. Gas is distraught. No one really knows what to do or say. I can't sleep in the aft, because right above us were the bench seats and where Josie was laying. I go up on deck, down the front of the yacht. It's a beautiful night. A crescent moon and fish jumping, sending rings out across the still water. We'd navigate back down to the river mouth in the dark. I'd been up front, highlighting the water's edge and giving Dave directions. It felt good to be useful and busy. Helped take my mind off things. Dave decided to pay a chopper to come in and fly Josie out. Because the doctor had expected us to sail two days in rough seas back to Darwin with Josie in the cockpit. Fucking knob. The helicopter was going to come in the morning, meet us at the mouth of the estuary. I lie awake on deck for a good while. It didn't feel right to fall asleep. Then Bryce shows up with his sleeping bag. Can I keep under your mozzinet, Rich? I don't like it in the bunk. Get in, mate. When Josie passed away, everyone said they could sense a spirit lever. Maybe it was just a life force, electricity. I don't know. But now all that was left was a shell. On sunup, the helicopter lands on a sandbank on the river's edge, waking us up. Dave rows over and picks up a policeman in a wide-brim hat and khakis, who's come out to question us. The green of my old Nepalese mosquito net came into focus. I was not long in remembering what happened last night and that Josie's wrapped in a sail in the cockpit. Josie's carried onto the helicopter. The fisherman who lost his tinny was a great help. No personal connection, just a job moving a package from A to B. As the copter takes off, I look up at Gus, waving goodbye to us 200 feet above. Surreal. I try to find reason in Josie's death, as if, when it's your time, it's your time. Josie died in a beautiful place and faded with the sunset. We saw a spirit leave. 
If life isn't forever, maybe that's why you should take it in both hands. I tell no lies, it was a relief to be sailing back out into the ocean again. Away from the memory of Josie's form under the sail. Maybe it didn't even happen. Out at sea, nobody talks about it. We catch a yellowfin tuna and cook it on the move. We sail as a team. And only when the bulb of light pollution shines in the distance, we go back to what we blanked out. Dinah Beach Yacht Club was in a reflective mood as Josie's ashes sailed out to sea. A partner said a really touching speech. Friends shout after the tiny reefs that hold her ashes. Invincible candles flicker in the wind as the reefs take off into the current at a rate of knots. She's off back to the Kimberleys, someone jokes. Go for it, Josie. I'll miss you, mate. Her hard-faced friends of Josie, who couldn't say hello without fitting in a couple of facts and bastards, breaks down in tears. Ten days pass, and we set out again. Gus said that it's what Josie would have wanted. It's true, but we all set off again for ourselves, and that's the real truth. Josie's passing brings home the reality, how precious life is. Life is now. I don't know about the others, but I wanted to live as much of it as I could. We sail non-stop for 48 hours, a good wind behind us. On night shift, I watch the stars rotate through 180 degrees of sky. See enough shooting stars to keep me in wishes for a lifetime. We pass the King George without comment. I miss Josie and her joviality. It's quiet without her music. She introduced me to Deep Forest. I'm playing it now and it takes me back to the early days of a magica with Josie. It's a strange feeling that she isn't here anymore with us. I try not to think of the cruel certainty of life. No one goes near Josie's old bunk. It lies empty the whole trip. Rest in peace, Joss. It's great to meet you. See you in the next life. Yeah, that wasn't my usual upbeat podcast. Um, but I wanted to just take that moment out there and not just add it to my podcast and then just go on to some other stuff. Like, Josie deserved a dedication there. See you next time.